This episode is sponsored by Down to Earth Ice Teas. Our functional super teas are made from organic super herbs and adaptogens and contain no sugar, no preservatives, no food colorings, and range from only zero to 10 calories per bottle. Our beverages are USDA organic, kosher, vegan, non-GMO, and keto and paleo friendly. Finally, bottled beverages that you can truly trust. Check out drinkdowntoearth.com and use promo code PODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. Our society has modernized and become so technologically advanced, but when it comes to our health, there's value in staying connected to nature, going back to the basics, and learning how to incorporate holistic principles into our daily lives. Our guests today are joined by naturopathic physician, Dr. Asia Muhammad. Dr. Muhammad specializes in gastrointestinal health and also focuses on treating patients with metabolic syndromes. In this episode, Dr. Muhammad shares her views on how we can all maintain optimal health and continue to become healthier versions of ourselves. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Muhammad. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're super excited to be chatting with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course, it's our pleasure. And I'd love to start off by learning a little bit more about your story and what ultimately propelled you to pursuing a career in naturopathic medicine. I grew up or I went to high school in Tennessee. And so, you know, high school is when you start deciding like your career path, or at least that's what society primes us to kind of do at that point of our life. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor in the medical field. And my mom just always thought I'd be some kind of cardiovascular or heart surgeon. And I remember going and shadowing some when I was in high school also and in undergrad. And I just did not really feel like this is something that I wanted to do. I didn't feel fulfilled. I did not, I wasn't like excited about it. And so I was really sick one semester in undergrad and I think I just had like sinus issues. And my mom always kept this book of this woman who had um, all these type of home remedies. And I just remember being so obsessed with this book as a young girl. And um, on the back, I saw ND and I just remember thinking, what? I've never heard ND before. So I Googled it and I literally had an epiphany and I tell this story all the time, but I've never had a moment like that moment ever in my life where everything was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Like it just clicked for me. And so I found the naturopathic medical school and applied and interviewed and ended up getting accepted. So that's how I kind of got started. But I've always been interested in all things natural. My mom never even kept medicine in the house growing up because she didn't believe in it. So we literally had to tough it out or we were always like trying to investigate our symptoms because we didn't have any medication. (laughs) I love that. And we grew up really similar where we tried to avoid medication and antibiotics at all costs Mm -hmm. and heal as many things as we could naturally. And when you grow up with that kind of a mindset, it's amazing because you really learn about the power of nature and learn the notion that you really could heal almost anything doing it the natural way. Yep. I agree. That's exactly what happened. 
Now in naturopathic medicine, you know, there's a wide scope of different modalities. Obviously you could prescribe medications and kind of go the allopathic route. But as we know, there's a lot of like nature care modalities and using Mm -hmm. that as well. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the current healthcare system, because I think especially at a time like now in the middle of a pandemic, it seems like there's a lot of different ideas and thoughts of how our current healthcare system should be running. So what do you think are some of the problems and maybe some ways that you think that we can kind of optimize the healthcare system to meet everyone's needs? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think that it's multifactorial in terms of issues in our current healthcare model. And, you know, for me, you know, growing up with my mother, the way she was, my parents, the way they were, I always think of like root cause medicine, right? And I think a lot of times with conventional medicine, which we all know, like a lot of it is just kind of how do we palliate? How do we give something to help the symptom go away or help, you know, relieve the patient, but you never really get to the root cause. So I think that that's a major issue. You find a lot of um, unnecessary prescriptions or overprescribed medications for certain patient um, demographics. And I think that there's obviously issues with insurance, insurance coverage, and these high deductibles. And, you know, there's so many issues, but I think the biggest ones for me have to be just the lack of like investigation into patient symptoms, which is wild because you look at conventional medicine and there's so many wonderful tools, you know, that you, you can use in conventional medicine to really kind of tease out what is going on with the patient, but they're really underutilized, which is ironic because there's actually um, um, literature suggesting that a lot of medical tools are overutilized, but I just think that the, the, the correct ones are underutilized. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I love like endocrinology and women's medicine. And I always think of the Mm -hmm. example, like hormonal birth control. Sometimes girls are put on birth control because they have a kid or irregular menses. And then years later they want to get pregnant and the problems are still there, if not worse. And the root cause is identified. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You see a lot of that. I remember doing a rotation with this doc, naturopathy doctor in Arizona, and she was seeing young woman who was, I think she was in her early thirties and she was trying to, she wanted to get pregnant and she had been on birth control since she was like 14, right? So that's like 16 years of birth control. And she said when she took her off of birth control, she just described it as her hormones were so bad that it looked like she was just in menopause at 30 years old, you know? So I think about long-term consequences of, you know, birth control of certain medications. You think of medications, antibiotics that are overprescribed leading to these kind of super bugs or resistant strains. It's just, it's just a lot of those types of scenarios you see play out currently. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that doctors could be doing a better job is just educating patients, even Mm -hmm. at a young age on how their bodies work and asking them the questions, you know, at 13, you may not know if you want to have children later on in life, but educating them, I think is really important. And I think that's the one good thing about social media is follow great accounts like yours. For example, people are learning a lot more about their body and the proper questions to be asking their doctors. Exactly. I I do think that's a blessing um, of social media. I definitely agree with you. For sure. Now, I know that you also focus a lot on GI health. And so I'd love to know a little bit as to the importance of the gut-brain connection, the gut-immune connection, and what you think are the biggest drivers behind our gut health. Totally. Yeah. So I, um, when I got out of school, I did a, a residency with two gastroenterologists. I'm really familiar with the GI space. That, that's what I've seen. That's the bulk of my practice. And so, you know, you look at the 
the gut, we have, they, they, we used to say that there are more bacteria in the gut than there are body cells. And now there's like current literature saying that there's probably just the exact same amount of gut bacteria as there are body cells. Some reports still say way more bacteria in the gut than there are body cells. But when you look at the gut, you know, your gut primes your immune system. I was just listening to a lecture this morning by some gastro doctor that's associated with like the one of the major gut journal and they were talking about this and discussing these features of the microbiome and how you know when you take mice that are pretty much germ-free versus when germ-free meaning like no bacteria in them they tend to have way more disease and worse pretend worse outcomes and disease and so they kind of correlate this with um, our immune function and the ability of the gut to modulate inflammation throughout the entire system so Every patient that I see, like I'm always assessing their gut function. I'm always asking about their history of antibiotic use, their history of fiber in the diet, their stress, medication use and whatnot. So I can kind of tease out just from my own clinical perspective, like what their gut, what may be going on in their gut in terms of how it's playing a role in their current disease state. So I don't know what your question was, but I tend to go on tangents about the gut. So (laughs) no, that, that definitely answers it. That gave us some good background. And so I'd also love to know a little bit about your favorite ways to help optimize gut health, whether it be nutrition, supplementation, lifestyle habits, what could we all be doing to better optimize our gut health? First thing I start with is food because you have to eat. So I typically recommend like kind of higher fiber diets. I recommend people titrating their fiber up at about five grams a week. If you go faster than that, you can actually become constipated and very bloated. And so my goal is like at least 40, 50 grams of fiber a day. And that sounds like a lot. And it can be a lot because the most Americans get only about 10 grams a day, if that. But the recommendation is like 25 grams of fiber a day, which I think is too low. But if you look at like diets of like people who lived in different times where they didn't really have a lot of, you know, GI disease that we have, especially like African populations, you find that they have some populations have as much as like 50 to 80 grams of fiber that they're eating every day. So that's one that I'm always promoting is a fiber rich diet, um, soluble fibers, insoluble fibers. The difference has to do with like how they're like cellularly structured, but they also have different roles in the gut as well. I will also recommend for different patients probiotics prebiotics. So prebiotics feed your bacteria, your gut bacteria, probiotics. It's like reestablishing good gut bacteria there. So those are some things I will do. I love using like foods to kind of target inflammation in the gut as well. So I use a ton of like different berries and um, cruciferous vegetables also. And I think the Okinawans, which may be one of the blue zones, their diet had, I think upwards of a hundred grams of fiber per day. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. We love fiber here, (laughs) but with probiotics, I've heard mixed things, but some docs saying that sometimes you just need to take a probiotic for like 30 days and then you're good. But then some other people say alternate your strains and you should be taking a probiotic every day. So I know it varies probably person to person, but what do you generally recommend? I generally recommend like altering the strains, especially because there's so much literature on so many different strains. And so there was actually a study I was listening to or reading this morning in regards to like Crohn's colitis cases and how they have a certain type and these cases of chronic inflammatory bowel disease and they have a higher amount of certain, I can't think of the name, but there's a bacteria that starts with the V, but they have higher amounts of these in the system. So for me, when I see patients with like dysbiosis, like the goal is kind of getting as much good bacteria in there as possible. And so I will alter 
I alternate between um, different types of probiotics with different strains of bacteria. I like Saccharomyces. I like Lactobacillus bifido. I like some of the spore-based probiotics that survive your stomach acid. And so they actually, what you get in terms of the number on the bottle is actually what you're getting or should be close to what you're getting. And sometimes the issues with probiotics is that by the time you take them, the amount that's listed on the bottle, you might not be getting that amount. So I just, I vary it up. And should you generally be taking your probiotics with food? No, honestly, that's a great question. I really have not seen a lot of literature saying with or without food, to be honest with you. I typically have patients take probiotics with food because your pH of your stomach is going to be highest when you're eating food. And so obviously, because your food is there neutralizing the pH as the stomach is pushing out acid. And so your pH when your stomach is at rest is typically around like one or two. But when you're eating food, um, your pH of your stomach is like around, I think, a four or five. And so obviously, it's less acidic, which means less opportunity for the probiotics to be damaged. So that's when I will recommend probiotics is actually with food. Awesome. That's definitely noted. Now, something that I hear a lot about nowadays, it seems that it's super common, is leaky gut. I feel like... Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 15 years ago, nobody was talking about it. Now it seems like everyone is suffering from it. And so I'd love for you to explain it a little bit and maybe some potential treatments that you found to be successful. Yeah, I know everybody in the mama have leaky gut now. It's like it's like the thing. It's like, and obviously we probably all do have some type of intestinal permeability, but you're right. It is such like a buzzword now, but I'm glad that there's so much attention around leaky gut because you know in the medical literature is still burgeoning in terms of the belief in leaky gut. And so Leaky gut refers to increased intestinal permeability, right? So the, the, the junctions between the, that, that connects the cells in the intestines are more, I'll say, loose than they should be or not really there as they should be. And so you have like a few different junctions that connect your, your intestinal cells. You have your tight junctions, which are most like, commonly like discussed. You have your desmosomes, you have adherins. They're all just different like kind of staples that staple the cells together. Some of them are at the top of the cell. Some of them are at the bottom of the cell. So it just depends. But a leaky gut refers to when these junctions are more permeable and, uh, than they should be. And when you think about leaky gut, it can occur in your small intestine or your large intestine. We, a lot of people think that leaky gut is just the small intestine. You have 20 feet of small intestine, but you have about seven feet of large intestine. So it can occur in your small intestine and large intestine. And there's literature supporting leaky gut in your colon uh, for ulcerative colitis patients, Crohn's disease, and other uh, autoimmune cases as well. So leaky gut, that's what leaky gut is. When I think about healing leaky gut, I think about three different layers. And so when you have leaky gut, a lot of people are referring to the cell layer, but there's also a mucus layer on top of your cell layer. And that's the first barrier of defense from anything that's coming into the gut, invading pathogens, bacterial toxins, food components can disrupt your mucosal membrane in the gut. And the mucosal membrane is really thicker in the large intestine than it is in the small intestine. And it has a lot to do with the fact that there are more mucus producing cells in your large intestine called goblet cells than there are in your small intestine. And they kind of secrete this mucus layer to protect your intestinal cells because your intestines are just one cell layer thick versus like, if you think about bone, which is like cell on top of cell on top of cell on top of cell or skin, which is like cell on top of cell layer on top of layer, your gut literally is one layer. It's a single epithelial cell layer, which makes it more permeable to damage um, from whatever you're eating. And so when you think about leaky gut and healing leaky gut, 
the mucosal portion, I'm thinking about um, different types of food. I'm thinking about bone broth. I'm thinking about bovine colostrum. I'm thinking about making sure your vitamins are adequate. I'm thinking about like your gut bacteria because bacterial toxins can damage the gut as well. I'm thinking about certain berries that have been shown to increase the upregulate the mucus genes, specifically like aronia berry and bilberry are good for fortifying the mucus layer and upregulating the genes that actually produce mucus. And then you think about the cell layer, I'm thinking about the same thing where the bovine colostrum is concerned and some of these other type of fortifying products to help with tight junctions there. I'm thinking about avoiding certain foods like gluten, which has been shown in non-celiac patients to disrupt the intestinal cell lining. So, you know, there's like a lot of conversation around, should you be gluten-free or should you not be gluten-free? But anybody that I see, most people that I see have chronic illness anyway, and I'm taking them off of it. But that's something that I do for healing up leaky gut. And I will always usually put patients on some type of really, really high potency probiotic, like extremely high potency probiotic. Going back to leaky gut, what are some symptoms that people should be looking out for if they're having general gut issues that may be contributed by leaky gut? So it's really hard to say in terms of symptom-wise, right? Because when you think about the gut, most common gut symptoms you have is like bloating, constipation, diarrhea, indigestion, abdominal pain. Like you don't really have a lot of other like GI symptoms per se. So when you think about leaky gut, it's so microscopic that you really could not gauge it on a physical level unless it was, well, even if it was like severe leaky gut, you're going to have some kind of serious outward manifestation where you're having like sepsis, right? Or you have like extreme like diarrhea type that drives you to the hospital. But other than that, it's really hard to gauge it. Most people I see with leaky gut have like minimal GI symptoms. Like they'll say like, oh, I have constipation here or there, or maybe they have some loose stool or they're always bloated. But um, just hearing that doesn't make me think leaky gut also, right? It could just be constipation. So yeah, I mean, there's not one symptom I can think of, but any type of chronicity of disease, like the gut is always involved. So those are the patients I'm thinking of for leaky gut. And it's funny that you mentioned like, oh, some people, they just may be having constipation or some diarrhea. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because a lot of people consider that to be normal. Oh, I a little fatigued, but that's normal. Everyone's fatigued. Yep. It's just really funny how the conversation around health is. I know, you know, it's interesting. I remember being in, in school as a naturopathic student and like we had to put, you know, use ICD-9 codes at the time. And every patient that we saw had like fatigue is like the, I used to have that code memorized. Everybody that we saw had fatigue on their ICD-9 code list. And I, it's like, I think it's like 97.8 or something. I don't know. But one of the codes for it, it was just like, like, like burned in my head. But I was in residency and I had this case, this woman who hadn't gone to the bathroom for one was 12 weeks and one was six weeks. And the woman who hadn't gone to the bathroom for 12 weeks, she was having a lot of abdominal discomfort and um, she was trying to go to the bathroom. The woman that, you know, was six weeker, she didn't even care. She's like, I feel fine. You know, there's no issue. You know, I'm not having any obvious emergency. So it's okay. And I remember saying like, your last duel was six weeks ago. That's not normal. (laughs) So the things that human body is able to do without, you know, erupting. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's, again, and I'm sure you educated her really well. And I think it all starts from there and kind of just educating Mm -hmm. people on how the body should normally function. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now you mentioned colostrum and we're both huge fans of colostrum, but for someone who's unfamiliar with it, if you can just explain it and some of the benefits of taking colostrum. Yeah. So usually colostrum is described as like baby's first milk, I believe what they say. And it's, it's bovine. I use bovine colostrum. So it's from cow, but it's not, does it have contain any of the kind of 
cow protein that typically disrupts people's guts. So people will say, well, I'm dairy free. You, can, you should, typically can still have bovine colostrum. It should be highly purified, but it's basically um, like simple way to describe. It. It's like a concentration of IgG, which is like a immune protein, immunoglobulin, which is like a protein that's been studied for its role in helping to fortify the gut, specifically studied in like Crohn's colitis cases. And there used to be a prescription form you could get of of bovine colostrum. I don't think it exists anymore, but I, I typically will use IgG bovine colostrum to help patients rebuild their gut lining. It's great stuff. I really love it. <laughs> I do too. Same, same, same. Now for even the most health conscious of us who eat clean, have a high fiber diet, take things like colostrum, we still live in a super toxic world. So even if you feel mm-hmm. that you are trying your best, you probably on a daily basis are still exposed to things that are out of your control. So I'd love to speak with you a little bit about detoxing and what are some of your favorite yeah. ways to detox the body? What are some accessible everyday ways that you know most people could slowly detox their bodies from all the pesticides and all the toxins we're surrounded by? So first things first, like your body is always detoxing, right? But the thing is, like you said, the world we live in, sometimes it's just the processes are very overwhelmed. And the first thing with the detoxification is obviously if you're trying to get something out or eliminate unnecessary toxicants in the system, you want to number one, avoid exposure as much as you can, right? So a lot of times we can't really avoid the air of the world we live in. It is what it is. But what you can do is as much as you can eat really organic, right? And avoid pesticides on your foods, um, avoid additives, avoiding emulsifiers, which I just read a paper this morning about how emulsifiers destroy your gut. And these are things that help to make, give like a smooth texture to certain ingredients and certain food components like ice cream. So avoiding things that will disrupt your system. In terms of detoxification, what I always do is like look at patients' gene picture to see kind of how their detoxification um, genes are actually working, if they're efficient, if they're moderately efficient, if they're not efficient at all. Because what happens is when you look at these like populations of people who have like these SNPs or these like little changes in their in their gene switches, I guess I'll say in simple terms, they're not able to metabolize toxins as well as somebody who maybe does not have that issue on their on their gene. And so when that happens, you find these people who have these these gene patterns with higher incidence in terms of like long-term studies or longitudinal studies of increased rates or risk of like cancers and other like chronic diseases. So the first thing I would do for a lot of patients if they want to have it done is just kind of get some genetic SNP testing done to see kind of what their cytochrome genes look like and other like uh, SO superoxide genes look like, the, the genes that include thione genes look like to see if they're actually able to properly detoxify. And if they are great, we can just kind of add a few things here or there. If they're not, I always put them on some type of protocol to help with glutathione. I put them on protocols to help upregulate those cytochrome systems to help push things through toxins through everything goes through your liver in terms of being broken down drugs supplements hormones everything is going there or is being made there so those are some some tools that i use so i always use like cruciferous vegetables right like the broccoli cauliflower cabbage arugula to help upregulate phase one and phase two detoxification there I love like certain liver botanicals to just to support liver function. Since the liver does do so much, it's just nice to kind of do self-care. Like you know, people do like self-care Sundays, it's like self-care liver, you know, like there are a few things you can do to just make sure your liver's not working so hard all the time. So those are things that I like to do. 
Well, those sound like all great things that we could all incorporate into our routines. What are your thoughts on enemas? I know coffee enemas are specifically becoming quite popular nowadays. So I'd love to know what you think of enemas and colonics maybe as well. You know, it's so crazy. It's like when I was in school, coffee enemas was like kind of somewhat a thing in naturopathic medical school. But like there was this doctor that was like really obsessed with like coffee enemas like back in the 80s. And I forget what his name is. There's like this entire book website on coffee enemas and it's like so funny to hear that it's now like like this burgeoning like kind of area right i'm like oh this is so like 1980s you know (laughs) things in the past always come back that's why we have to to look to the future but always stay connected to the past as well yes there you go it's like leggings you know anyway so um (laughs) i don't know i'm not really a huge fan of enemas honestly because i've seen so many patients do well without them well it depends so I'm thinking of colonics. I'm sorry. You said enemas. So enemas, it just depends on the case. So I've seen enemas work with people with really severe like constipation and help with that. In terms of coffee enemas for like liver health, I'm not sure. It, ter- it just depends on what the end goal is. Because if somebody has normal liver function and or we're working on a chronic detox protocol for like whatever environmental stuff they have going on or mold or lime, whatever. Like I'm not really a huge fan of just doing coffee enemas. Number one, I don't really know so much about them to be honest with you to feel comfortable recommending them. And number two, I've just not seen enough literature to support the role of coffee enemas in terms of like long-term detoxification protocols. So I'm not opposed to them. I'm just not really familiar with what the actual goal is. Yeah, no, I think it's important to have a goal in mind. I agree with you. And Something that we should all look into a little bit more because I have heard some really great success stories, like from friends. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard people that had tremendous amount of toxin buildup in their body and they started to feel really great after they started doing them. So it is good that the conversation about things like enemas are really normalizing. And totally. It's that people have to be hush hush about anymore. And now it's celebrated. So people yes. don't have to feel judged. Just, you know, keep your health in mind and do whatever gets you to, to feeling your healthiest. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. You know, like I said, it's not something that I am familiar with, but like I said, there's a lot of this doctor. He was so obsessed with these things. He wrote so much and documented so many cases on it. So I wouldn't be opposed. Like if patients come to see me and they do, will ask like, can I do a coffee enema? People will ask it. I'm like, listen, if you feel better, then do it. You know, I don't see the I don't really see the issue unless they have like you know some severe type of like liver disease. I will never recommend those for like cirrhotic patients, but most people don't have that, right? So. Now, I know you work with a lot of patients that have metabolic disease. So whether that be mm-hmm. pre-diabetes, diabetes, high cholesterol, stuff like that. How do you approach patients with these conditions? Because even I think at a time like this, we've seen a lot of people with comorbidities had mm-hmm. were affected by COVID pretty significantly. So how do you approach patients with these kinds of diseases? So when it comes to metabolic disease, metabolic syndrome, I will always start with like the lowest hanging fruit. And for a lot of patients, that's just like really simple dietary tweaks, like things to eliminate out of the diet and things to add in. Like a big one that I always focus on is like soda, right? And juices, right? A lot of people like drink juices and they're unaware of the high fructose corn syrup in juice. And I I focus on kind of education back to what you were saying earlier, like education is such a big piece. And I think that a lot of times what you find is just a lack of knowledge, you know, because nobody wants to be sick. And so I, I had a patient once 
who um, had metabolic disease, he was had morbid obesity in terms of the categorization that they were using at the time. And then some fatty liver and I think um, high blood pressure. And so this person was on dialysis and none of the doctors, the nephrologists could figure out what caused his kidneys to fail. There was no like extensive medication history that, you know, a lot of times some of these meds are associated with kidney damage, kidney failure. That was not an issue. And so when they looked at, I looked at his history, actually, that they never figured it out. And I just kind of asked him like, you know, what's your diet? Like, you know, do do you drink soda? And this person, they just said, yeah, I drink, you know, a can of soda, like a, a six pack of soda a day. And when you look at sodas, you know, sodas have not, not the, even the sugar, but the phosphates, right? So phosphates are notorious for damaging the kidney. So, you know, it just blows my mind that, you know, even in conventional medicine, like the, these conversations are not happening with patients and they're just kind of like, oh, it's idiopathic kidney failure. There's no such thing as kidneys just failing, you know, something's happening. So when it comes to metabolic disease, I always focus like some of the lowest hanging fruit, which is just like what's going on in the patient's life now that we can tweak and educate around. And I've seen patients just lose so much weight, reverse high blood pressure, prediabetes and diabetes, just by taking things out of the diet that they were previously unaware were contributing to their condition. Not even like, you know, adding supplements. Like I've been able to just help patients with just food, you know, food alone. Yeah. I mean, just change. Which is a blessing. It is because it shows you how attainable Mm -hmm. making these big lifestyle changes are. I think starting with beverages is a really big one because you want your beverages to be as clean as possible. That's what inspired me to create down to earth, which is a healthy bottled iced tea brand that I own because so many, even the ones that seem super healthy have so much sugar, high fructose corn syrup, added colorings, all these chemicals, and most consumers don't even realize it. So if you just try to control what you drink and what you eat over a consistent period of time, you could come up with some astounding, astounding results. When we were chatting about the healthcare system, it's the food system too, that we're fighting against, right? Because Mm -hmm. It's not the consumer's fault. I mean, you're from a young age. I mean, even if you walk through a supermarket, they have the sugary cereals at the bottom so that the kids could reach to it. I mean, it's all basically engineered so that you grow up addicted yep. to foods and you, you know, watching TV, scrolling through Instagram, you're marketed to every day. And sugar is addicting. Sugars, fats, salts, those foods are addicting. And they're hoping that you're going to be a consumer until the day you die. Exactly. You know, I agree with you 100%. Dr. Dr. McGregor, he mentioned at one point in time that he believed that the number one cause of like weight, obesity, if you will, is advertisement, (laughs) which I thought was brilliant. And you are on the money, you know, the power of the mind, the power of the subconscious mind. And, you know, I always tell patients like you could be driving down the freeway and just see a billboard for some new, I don't know, fries at Taco Bell or something. And the next day or that week you're at Taco Bell, you know, getting fries. And you didn't even plan to do that that week, but you just thought, oh, let me go grab these fries that I saw on this billboard that you weren't even really paying attention to, like the power of the mind. So I agree a hundred percent. Like these advertisement companies, they know exactly what they're doing. And when you look at some of the advertisement, you see like certain certain populations have ads that are disproportionately placed in their communities, like black, Latino, like Hispanic communities have higher amounts of these types of like junk food ads. And you find higher rates of metabolic disease or more serious metabolic disease in also in these populations. And it's so unfortunate that that's the case. And you have all Mm -hmm. these people in government and in society and these powerful positions that talk about wanting to create lasting change for a lot of populations of people, but it starts right there. If you really want to help, you could help. The change could be right there because what you eat affects 
your mood. It affects your ability to think clearly, to make the most of your life. So I think that people really have to start to take their health into their own hands because the government, these big corporations are not looking out for you. And it's time that people really not only understand that, but embrace that mindset and really fend for themselves. You know, and I think that that shift is starting to happen. I think that social media has been a large driver of that kind of shift of people kind of eyes being open in terms of what's going on. You know, even if there was just laws saying like you can only have X amount of ads, you know, per every mile or whatever, like that would even be a big help in terms of reducing some of these, these, these outcomes. It would, or even like all the pharmaceutical commercials. I think the only (sighs) countries that allow them are the United States and New Zealand that's banned in pretty much every other country. So just blocking that would make such a big difference in this country. Uh So I agree. Lots of change that needs to happen. I agree with you. I agree. (laughs) Now we touched a little bit on the power of the mind. And I think that when you look at treating a whole person, someone can come into your office and they may have some sort of physical concerns, but a lot of them could possibly be stemming from their mind and it'll manifest in the physical body. And there's also a really big connection between our gut and our mental health. So what are some ways that you like to treat anxiety or brain fog or just the conditions that we see normal nowadays? (laughs) I actually um, train in like um, hypnotherapy. And so I really enjoy using like mind body tools and helping patients. Like I create customized scripts for patients so that they can kind of feel empowered to achieve their own outcome. And so when it comes to like anxiety, depression, mood disorders, I will always ask like, history about gut health because there's a lot of literature around mood and kind of gut health and bacteria in the gut producing their own chemicals like serotonin and GABA, which affect our our mood. I also look at genes. I look at methylation, right? Which is kind of like an on and off switch in terms of like certain gene pathways and detoxification and a whole bunch of other processes in the body. So it's multifactorial, but I'm also um, asking them about family history. And when it comes to like treatment, I typically will do like real basic things just to start people out. I usually will use some type of botanical, depending on if it's like depression or anxiety or whatever it may be. And then I'll always use like some type of like quality multi or quality omega because you need healthy fatty acid membranes to transmit signals between them. So I will oftentimes do that because a lot of times we have too much you know, omega-6, well, not a lot of times, most Americans have too much omega-6 versus omega-3. So I like to be really, really basic in starting out and then I'll kind of, kind of see how patients are doing and then go from there in terms of like adding in more protocols or like adding in like a test to, to kind of gain more information. And going back to omega-6, so that's an inflammatory compound. And so we see that inflammation is really common now. So what does inflammation kind of indicate in the body? How do you test for it? And how do you start to treat it? Inflammation is a normal process in the body, right? You have tons of different, well, not tons of white blood cells, which have like different, like different types of, of, I guess, white blood cells or immune cells that actually you need an inflammatory response, right? When you do have something acutely wrong in the body, you need an inflammatory response to kind of quell the reaction. And you have inflammation is good. If you cut your finger, if you cut, even if you cut your arm or something happened, you need some inflammation to help kind of get the situation under control. The issue is that we are over inflamed, right? Where tissues that should not be inflamed in our body are inflamed, our liver, you know, we have kidney, pancreas, you know, your intestines, you know, these are all things that we're having now chronic inflammatory issues with where there's just too much activity 
um, cellular activity in these areas. And, you know, it's amazing. The human body, honestly, is just so fascinating in terms of all of the chemicals that we have going on. We would never even know, you know, just walking around what's going on in one, you know, like cubic inch of our body. Yeah, but inflammation happens when you have too much oxidation going on in an area relative to antioxidants. And so when you see that, you know, I also, wait, what was your question? I'm just like running on a tangent. Oh no, that's, it was so many questions. I think you did a great <laughs> job of kind of explaining what inflammation is and how it's a normal process. But now that we're seeing that a lot of the population is overinflamed, So maybe just like some tests. So tests um, for inflammation. Now the basic ones, you typically find is like your sed rates or CRP. Those can be normal though, and you can still have inflammatory processes going on. So typically like an ESR or a sed rate, you see elevated if somebody's having like an acute flare of an autoimmune disease, right? So you see like in lupus or you'll see rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's colitis, or even like some kind of chronic inflammatory disorder, you you find like elevated ESR, CRP, and CRP is one more sensitive for your cardiovascular system. And so most Americans end up dying of cardiovascular disease. So this is one that some doctors will include in your basic blood work. Another one that can indicate inflammation is white blood cell count. And I literally, so many doctors miss this and it's so bothersome to me because it's it's included in every basic blood panel is your CBC. If your white blood cell count is consistently greater than a 6.5, that's a sign that you have chronic cardiac inflammation going on in your system. There's actually literature showing how if your, if your white blood cell count is 6.5 to 6.7, like over time, you are highly likely to have some cardiac event in your life. And I had a patient the other day who's like white blood cells, like been at a nine for the past like couple of years and, and nobody's caught it. They're just like, oh, it's normal. It's not normal. And so that's one that I always look at like white blood cell count. Obviously you need your white blood cells to fight off infection and so forth. But if it's chronically high, they also are a marker of inflammation. So that's something that I always look at. It's like on every blood panel you've ever had done is your white blood cell count. So you don't need any special order test to have that checked out. And then I'll look at, sometimes you can also gauge that from like platelet count as well. And um, like a GGT, which is more so for the liver, but GGT is really, really sensitive for your liver. It's not the best test because if you like, I don't know if you somebody punch you in the liver or something, you're, it would go up. It's not really indicative of chronic, like long, over, long term. But if you get it measured over time, it can actually be a certain indication of glutathione as well as some other antioxidants in the system. So usually if your GGT is really high, it could either be some liver stuff going on or it could also be you don't have enough antioxidants as well. And how often should we be running these panels? Do you recommend just a yearly panel? Should we be looking at it more often? I think more often. Um, I, I typically will say at least twice a year just to kind of track it over time because, you know, a year is a long period of time. So it's like you're just doing it once a year. Some, a, a major event can happen between now and a year later. And so like health event. And so I would say at least twice a year there. My sister just told me about some lab company where you can do your own blood work and you don't need a doctor's order. But you can do, or three times a year would be optimal. So like kind of every four months, just kind of tracking that number. If it's stable and it sits in a good range and stable, that's great. But if it's like consistently like 6.5, 6.7, like it's not saying you're going to have a major cardiac event now, or even like in the next couple of years, but it is something you have to pay attention to. And it's also pretty empowering. I think for patients too, to kind of see like, I'm going to do my blood work. I'll make these lifestyle dietary recommendations, whatever it be, even supplements, and then reassess and see what's working and what's not. Yep, exactly. It's excellent feedback. It is. It really is. For sure. Now, 
Another topic that seems to be super popular now is fasting. And so I'm curious if you're a fan of fasting and if so, what types of fasts do you like the best? I am a super, super fan of fasting. Like my mother used to make us fast when we were 16. <laughs> really? Kind of fast. I probably should put that out there because it's probably like somebody called Child Protective Services. But, uh, <laughs> she was looking out for you guys. <laughs> She's like, as soon as you turn 16, you can start fasting. So um, before it was trendy, your mom? Oh yeah. She literally to this day, since I've, since I was like, I don't know, maybe 10, she's only eaten one meal a day. Wow. And she's like, she looks so good for her age. And she used to exercise like every day, but she like works on homes now. So she gets her exercise in another way, but she literally eats one meal a day. She doesn't eat any meat. She eats like a big, big bowl of like beans or bean soup or like lentils for her protein. And she has like a big green salad or she'll eat like cruciferous vegetables. And she drinks like only water. She like, if she drinks milk, it's like super raw milk, which maybe that's controversial for some people, but she loves raw milk. And then she just drinks like water. And she literally is like a 20 year old. Oh my God. We need to get her on the podcast. <laughs> no, you don't. She's crazy. <laughs> no, I love it. Crazy's good. What initially propelled her to, to live that kind of a lifestyle? Cause you know, back then there wasn't nearly as much information as there is now. She's just always been really health conscious. And I think for her, she just like see, has seen her, her parents or her mom and her siblings, aunts and uncles just grow up really unhealthy. And I think that for her, she was just always educating herself. And I think she came across a book or at one point in time discussing like the benefits of not eating all the time and giving your system some rest. And so she just started and has not stopped. And she literally is my idol. She, she is so disciplined in her eating habits, like nothing you've ever seen before. And you know what it is with that is that I think a lot of people think fasting is, it's like a diet culture kind of term and it's right purposes. But if we shift the conversation to the actual benefit of fasting and giving your body a rest to repair, Mm -hmm. I think the idea of fasting becomes easier for people. I agree with you. And that's how I've always um, thought about fasting. You know, you think about your gut and you think about your body, like it needs some time to calm down. If you are always running a car, you know, the parts at some point you're going to have to replace them. You know, and there are some body parts you just can't replace. So I think about that analogy in terms of like always running a car at the highest speed and you have like, you know, your car goes to, I don't know, 120, but you're not you're never driving at 120, right? You're never trying to push yourself to the maximum amount. You're not always trying to be at like 60 miles per hour all the time either. So I think that, you know, you do need periods of rest and that is really beneficial. There's so much wonderful literature on fasting and I'm obsessed, like obsessed with fasting. I I also read this book by um, Arnold Air. I can't say his last name, Erich or Erich, but he talks about fasting and eating one meal a day there's also a book called How to Eat to Live that talks about fasting, eat, eating one meal a day. There's like a lot of new literature out now on fasting, which I just love because I really think it's one of the simplest, cheapest tools you can use to kind of get your body back. And it's one thing that I always use for any metabolic disease case. And I've literally seen them, along with eliminating foods out of their diet, reverse diabetes, blood pressure, get down to the weight, like blood, like it's amazing, clip it level. So I'm a huge fan of all types of fasting. I don't think of it as fasting. I'm like, this is just what your body needs to do forever. Like this is what it is. I agree. It's not like a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle Yep. you need to do consistently. I personally do like a longer fast. I do a 37 hour fast once a week. Nice. I know a lot of people who just intermittent fast do one meal a day, pretty much, you know, five to six days a week. So there's so many different ways that you could fast effectively. You just have to find what works best for you. 
That's right. I agree a hundred percent. That's that's wonderful that you do a a 37, 36 or 37 hour fast. Yeah, I do it once a week. And it's funny because my mom, I feel like my mom and your mom would probably be yeah. really good friends. <laughs> she would say, well, she's been fasting uh, the same types of fast that I do for so many years. And she also looks super young. Everyone's mm-hmm. 30 years old and mm-hmm. she won't miss a week. Like even if we're traveling and we're somewhere where there's great food and we love the restaurants, she'll still have her weekly fast. That's amazing. I love to hear that. That's wonderful. Kudos to her. Yeah. It's discipline. Yep. And I feel like that's exactly what it is. Yeah. There's this fear of discipline now because now I feel like with the culture, especially the younger generations, it's all about just like instant gratification and comfort. You can't deny yourself anything and you have to always sort of give yourself what you want. But I think that there's a lot of problems in that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. really do have to embrace discipline because discipline in all areas of your life could only help you. I agree. That's what I, I like you guys. Yes. I love I it. We're speaking the same language. Uh, yeah, I love we it. Were, <laughs> friends, where are you based currently? I am currently in Missouri. I was in Arizona and then my family all, well, my parents moved out here and then my sibling moved out here. So I just wanted to be near them. So I moved back to Missouri, which there's only three naturopathic doctors in the entire state that are practicing. And so it's a, it's a small world out here. Um, and I definitely have less like rights than I did in in Arizona, but I, I work with an MD now I mean, we kind of, I see functional medicine cases and go over all these types of tests and, you know, recommend protocols. So I'm still able to do what I do. That's awesome. If we're ever in Missouri, we'll let you know, and we'll have to get together. And if you're ever in Arizona, we're currently in Scottsdale. So I love Scottsdale. Yeah. I'll probably be out there sometime um, before the years. I'll, so I'll definitely email you guys. Let us know for sure. For sure. We can do a fast together. Yes, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So we spoke a lot about diet and fasting. Do you have any like favorite naturopathic modalities or kind of your go-tos? Yeah, I love mind body medicine. So I love all types of biofeedback. I'm actually doing some neurofeedback on myself now. So I, I love anything mind body, autogenic training, progressive muscle relaxation, because there's not a lot you have to do. And there's a lot of potential that you find with mind body medicine. And you look at like literature, there's most research in terms of like different modalities behind mind body medicine and, and like even in, in encompassing the field of like psychology. But the mind is so powerful. And when you look at like disease, like a lot of it starts as a thought, especially chronic diseases, you know, metabolic diseases, a thought, you know, it's a thought to consume certain things or to avoid, you know, you know, certain sleep habits and whatnot. So it's all in the mind. And then I love, love, love like botanical medicine and food as medicine. So those would be my favorite. I used to also be into like hydrotherapy as well when I was a, a student clinician. Yeah. And just ending those showers on cold. It's one of the hardest things to do, but so it really is. <laughs> it really is so hard. Love that you mentioned the power of your thoughts. I'm a big fan of Dr. Joe Dispenza. I don't know if you're familiar. With Listen, him. what do you mean? Am I familiar? <laughs> of course I'm familiar with him. I love Dr. Dispenza. I just like listened to his book, audio book. I just finished it. And then I like started doing his like blessings of the, med- of the, medita- of the energy centers meditation. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. I mean, even like the stories that he mentioned, I've listened to so many of like the podcasts he's been on. Mm -hmm. Our thoughts are really powerful. We don't give them enough credit. We really don't. We really don't. Honestly, I really like would love someday to work at or create some kind of like mind institute where we just do mind therapies and nothing else. You know, I think that'd be so cool. 
Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the other benefits that I've recently noticed with fasting too, is we have, what is it like 50,000 thoughts per day? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Something six thousand, an average, an or maybe average, 6, yeah, an average person has six thousand thoughts a day. But I think wow. a lot of the times we have thoughts that we don't want to have, so we suppress them. Whether that be you know mm-hmm. alcohol or even healthy ways like exercise, but we still are suppressing them and not getting to like the root cause of it. And I think that's one thing about fasting is you're almost you're not really able to suppress those emotions, so they come to the surface and you're able to deal with them. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Fasting in the mind. You know, I feel when I fast, like I'm really alert and I, I agree with you. I'm really aware of my thoughts. And I, I, I realize, like when I'm not fasting, I'm not, they just kind of pass by. Yeah. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. A hundred percent. Now I'd love to know a little bit about what your morning routine looks like. Cause you know, we hear a lot about morning routine, starting your day on the right note and how sort of setting up your day for success could really impact the way that your day goes and, you know, how you physically and mentally feel as well. So I'd love to know how you sort of start your days and see if there's anything in there that we could learn from. So I typically get up around four or five every morning, except on the weekends, I will try to like add in a few extra hours of Z's, but usually my body wakes me up at four or five or six so I usually get up four or five during the weekdays and I will start off by just like thanking God, thanking the universe for waking me up. So just start out with gratitude and then I'll do some stretching along with like just like bio breathing. So there's an app I have on my phone that kind of helps me like watch my breaths go in and out. And so I'll do some of that. I'd have a different regimen every few months. So I always take my supplements in the morning. And if I know it's like a sulfur-based one, like alpha-poic acid, I will take it later on with food because it will give me nausea. So I will push some of those around, but I always take my supplements. Um, I may have like a cup of coffee because I love coffee and there's more like literature on coffee than there is for fish oil. So anybody that's a coffee hater, take that. So I love coffee and I have it like... (laughs) Okay, good. I'm like, I hope you guys like coffee. That tells me that coffee is good for me. (laughs) There you go. I was like... I have to have like a cup of coffee. If I don't, I'm still fine. But I used to work at Starbucks when I was like 17. So I've like been obsessed with coffee ever since. But I do like, you know, more ethically and organic coffee now. But I will have that. And then I'm always like, I get two hours in every day of some type of audiobook or podcast or like actual like medical studies or like an actual book book. But that's like every day. And I just feel like a better person in terms of like my self-awareness and like just the universe and opportunity and like people. So I find that like listening to some type of it's not even like self-improvement, but I guess that is like self-improvement um, literature every day is really, really um, helpful for, for me. It is. And I actually, like starting last March, committed to reading for at least 30 minutes a day. And it's amazing nice. when you commit to doing that, you actually end up going through so many either books or audiobooks or podcasts throughout the year. And you're really doing yeah. it. I feel like you're not the same person. I feel like you're a different person. Like you can actually feel like a, these actually like a different person in the next year. You know what I mean? Like yeah. once you've like read so many books or listened to so many things, like you can never go back to the person you are. You never even think the same. Yeah. And that's why you really have to value your time. Time is the most powerful commodity. And I think yep. a lot of people don't realize how important their time is. And so they'll waste it doing things that don't really add any value to their lives. And obviously we all need to unwind. And sometimes we just want to sit on the couch and watch TV and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I think we really do have to embrace how powerful our time is and try to make the most of it. I agree. I agree a thousand percent with that one. Now you mentioned that you like to mix up your supplement routine. I'd love to know what's currently in there and what 
supplements you think everyone, well, almost everyone could benefit from incorporating on a daily basis? Listen, this could be an entire episode on its own. Okay. So back to go into detail, but just a little (laughs) overview. We love supplements. So, okay. So I have, before I say that, I have a friend, they have a clinic in Arizona and like, they literally were like so close in terms of like our supplement regimen. They're brilliant. You guys have to go visit them, check them out. What's the clinic called? The W Clinic of Integrative Medicine. It's three siblings, two brothers and a sister. And then uh, one of them is married to the brother. So I went to school with two of them, but they're brilliant, brilliant doctors. And so they're always in like 50 supplements as well. So I love it. And so I am currently doing like, I just started the, I don't know if you say Quelia, Quelia brand, like neurohacking supplements for like, you know, brain optimization. I take a different, I take two different probiotics um, every day. One is a spore-based, one is a non-spore-based probiotic. I take NAC every day for glutathione, also for like liver detoxification. I take some type of like broccoli sprout cruciferous supplement. I do like general multivitamin. I do omegas. I do vitamin D. I do some type of liver support, like usually like milk thistle every day. Let's say I do saffron because saffron's actually been shown to be really beneficial for your mood and actually comparable to some of the antidepressants in terms of its effect. So I take saffron every day. Also saffron for, um, is good for like appetite control, which is, you know, something like when you're doing fasting protocols, it just helps to kind of keep you on the right track. So I'll do saffron and I do like a few other ones is like mitochondrial focused supplements as well. So, I mean, that's just like a small snippet, but I won't keep going. Yeah. And you're taking these, like, you're not just taking them just to take them. Like the, each one is serving a specific purpose, which I think exactly. Yeah. I think it's great. You know, I think that it's optimization, you know, and I, I don't mind it. Like, obviously like patients that I see, I'm not going to throw them on 20 supplements. Right. But people want to know, like, what can I do to to optimize my health? This is just, it is what it is. Right. In terms of how I feel about health and health outcomes. And so you don't have to be on those things to be healthy, but I want to be like 90 and still like, you know, sound mind, sound body, able to get around kind of thing. So that's my goal is to out like live to like 150. So I think that these things are going to help me. And if they don't, whatever. (laughs) And looking as good as our moms. Exactly. Exactly. And they take, my mom takes no supplements. I need to get on her low actually, but. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I take more than my mom. I mean, I think you can get a lot of really great stuff from your food, but right now you can't really get all the that you need. So I do agree that it's about optimization. I agree. Yes, ma'am. For sure. Now a question that we love to ask all of our guests is if you could sit down and have tea with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? It would definitely be, this is a hard one. I have two people, but I'll just say. That's fine. It could be. Okay, cool. It would be Beyonce and Aretha Franklin. (laughs) I just love Aretha Franklin. Her story is just so unique and she just seems like such a down to earth person. I would just love to get some life advice from her. And then I just think Beyonce is such a hard worker. She literally had twins and performed like for hours at Coachella. Like I need to know what her willpower discipline, like where it comes from. I love her. So Beyonce and Aretha and um, yeah, I'd be good. And I feel like Beyonce is a lot more humble than she can be, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love that about her. Yes. I love Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone out there who's going to listen to this episode that wants to learn more about your work, potentially get in touch with you. Where are the best places to reach you at? Okay. So that's two places. So my website is just my name, www.asiamuhamad. And then Instagram is just Dr. Asia Muhammad, same thing. So you can message me on Instagram or reach out um, via my website. 
And I love your Instagram. It has so much useful information. And I think the way that you organize everything is just so unique and cool. So everyone go. Thank you. Easy to understand, which I love because you're talking about a lot of topics that most people might find like overwhelming or hard to understand, but with like the infographics and everything that you have up there, it makes it super easy to understand. And yeah, really great content. Thanks. I really do appreciate that feedback guys. Thank you. Of, of course. course. And thanks for joining us today. We both had a so really great fun. time chatting yeah. with you and we learned so much and we're excited to share your wisdom with our amazing community. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us on our episode with Dr. Muhammad. Dr. Muhammad shared valuable insight with us on our current healthcare system and ways that she believes we can all lead more healthy and natural lives. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch with us on our Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.